The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. How many people are here for their first Buddhist studies class? So, a few folks, welcome. Nice to have you here. I'm assuming you registered. That way you'll get in the Buddhist studies uh, Google group and you'll get emails. And uh, Kevin, uh, one of our um, web people who helps keep our websites, our website, web pages up to date, he'll put up the articles and other related mat- study materials on the website. So you can go directly there. You don't have to go through the emails by just going to the website, commongroundmeditation.org. Look under resources, and then there will be the Buddhist studies page. And we'll create a new page because we haven't done this uh, sequence of teachings before the three wholesome and the three unwholesome roots. And uh, so hopefully you'll get on that email list in any case so that you'll um, yeah, just be up to date on what's happening in the class over these next few weeks. So because most of you have been in this, I won't spend too much time going through the criteria, but just for the few of you who are here for the first time, you know, there is a prerequisite. We want people who do the Buddhist studies to be actively practicing. So not just studying, not just interested intellectually in the teachings, but putting the teachings into practice. So not maybe you don't sit every day, but there's an intention to sit every day. Whether you get to that or not, the intention is to sit every day. And the other criteria we have is that you've done some retreat practice, including even half-day retreats. And we've made exceptions for people who really want to be in the course, but during the course we'll do some retreat practice, day-long half-day retreats, residential retreats. And again, it's sort of an arbitrary criteria, but we just want people who are taking the class to be really into the form, which is I'm going to put myself down on a chair or cushion and I'm going to use the mind to look at the mind because I'm interested in deepening the understanding. Like, what is this mind? And how come I end up suffering so much? (laughs) And what, you know, what is that experience when there isn't suffering, when the mind, heart isn't contracted? And how does that come to be? So this is what, distinguishes people who are, I don't know if the right word is serious, it's not a very good word, but more intent, more dedicated, more devoted to these teachings from the Buddha, these teachings about waking up to the nature of the mind and the nature of the, like how suffering comes to be, how stress comes to be, how that ceases, right? If we're really a person who's interested in that, then we're going to set aside some time to look at the mind. And we're going to set aside time that is supportive of that kind of work. It's not so easy to do it in the middle of chaos. But we just do the best we can in our situation. Every other week for the new folks, we'll have small groups. I'll talk about more of the small groups next week. But just a reminder to everyone that it's not an optional part of the class. So week two and week four, we'll save the last 30 minutes or so, we'll break into groups of three or four, and you'll just be sharing what you've been learning. Now it's really fine, and I'll give you, before we end today, some thoughts about what you might be paying attention to during the week, because next week we'll have small groups. And it's nice, like some of you have your name tags on tonight. but always the night we have small groups wear your name tags. And you can wear it all the time you're here for the Buddhist studies because some of you in the room have been doing these Buddhist studies classes for well over 10 years. And uh, it's a really beautiful community. And then in the small groups, it really will help to have a name tag because you you'll be with people you should know their names because you've been seeing them for a long time and talking to them and sharing relatively intimate stuff about your mind and your heart, and you won't remember their name, but they will be right there on their chest, and you won't feel uneasy. 
as long as you can read. Good. Any nuts and bolts questions? So I sent an email out to people who registered and to the Buddhist Studies Google group earlier this morning. So if you didn't get that, it's because you just registered or you haven't registered or for whatever reason you're not in one of those groups. And then Gabe today put the people who haven't been in the Google group who registered into the Google group. So I'm going to send another email tomorrow with a few more resources. If you don't get an email from me tomorrow, you're not in the Google group. So then on Wednesday, send me an email, and we'll make sure you get into that. And my email address, if you don't have it, is mark at commongroundmeditation.org. On the website, it's info at. You just put mark instead of info. It will come directly to me. But if you go info at, it will still get to me eventually. And I just want to thank Scott Jensen, who's our IT person, has been at Commonground mostly offering a service services freely. We give him a small stipend every year because of his professional services or IT person. But he's also helping stream this for people who are listening in around the country. And we have a small but growing group of folks that listen in. And if you want to help support that, uh, Doug does the audio recording. So if you have to miss, you're out of town or your child's sick and you need to be home, or you're sick, then we usually get a, get the recordings up maybe in three or four days so you can listen to it at home. So, no nuts and bolts questions? Good. And we'll do the chant at the very end tonight, if you're wondering. And then from the next three weeks, we'll do it right at the beginning, and I'll talk about that at the end of the evening, this chant that we do. So we have this. It's really an amazing privilege, you know, that a bunch of relatively wise folks, I mean, we're wise enough to know that it's relevant to pay attention to the mind and to get interested in the heart and how it is that stress arises and how it is that stress ceases. So just the fact that we're interested enough to be here means, you know, relatively speaking, where we have the good fortune to be wise enough to to realize the significance of turning the awareness toward the mind, toward the heart itself. It's relevant. The activity of the mind, it's relevant. And one of the really powerful frames that gets covered in a lot of the other courses in the six-year Buddhist study sequence that I thought it'd be nice to really hone in is, are these teachings on the three wholesome and unwholesome roots. There's this wonderful little passage from the Buddhist teachings. Abandon what is unskillful. One can abandon the unskillful. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do so. If this abandoning of the unskillful would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to abandon it. But as the abandoning of the unskillful brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, abandon what is unskillful. Cultivate the good. You can cultivate the good. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do it. If this cultivation of the good would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to cultivate it. But as the cultivation of the good brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say cultivate the good. Sort of an encouraging statement from the Buddha. And I remember a long time ago, um, I used to read and listen to a lot of Ajahn Sumedho's teachings. He's one of the elder Western Buddhist monks uh, in the Thai forest tradition. I think he's been a monk. I mean, he didn't ordain until he was in his early 30s, but being in his mid-80s now, he's been a monk for a long time. And um, But one of the points he used to make all the time, you know, and you can imagine somebody who, you know, in the 60s and 70s where there's a lot of this sort of new agey stuff, and that sort of one of the premises and kind of the hippie 
new agey circles is well, we're just going to follow the heart. You know, that's not an uncommon statement. And even, there's some truth to that. But he, his point was always, no, 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 we're not following the heart. Like, you know, we wouldn't say that, oh, I'm just going to follow my habit energy. Because that's really what the heart is. It's just a conglomeration of different habit energies. That's our personality. And a lot of the habit energies that have a lot of momentum are not necessarily the habits that we want to express in the world. Because that's what makes the world the way that it is, right? It's messy. And there's a lot of injustice and a lot of unnecessary suffering because of the way the world is. And the world is just the coming together of all these hearts. I mean, that's what makes the world the way that it is. All of these habits. And so he says, it's not about following the heart, it's about training the heart. So the confidence we have is that the heart or the mind is trainable. We're not destined. We don't have to be destined to always do what we've always done, always getting the same results we've gotten before. We can actually pay attention, and in paying attention, getting a sense of how it works, the underlying roots. Because one of the things that we realize when we're paying attention is that the mind, the heart, is actively constructing our experience. We're complicit. <laughs> like Whatever the moment's like for you right now, it's not like some outside forces are just dumping that experience on you. And we're just like a passive recipient. Oh, it's a great moment. And I'm just lucky that somehow the dump truck of life is dumping that nice experience on me right now. And then the next moment, you know, it's a horrendous experience and nothing for me to do. It's just happening to me. And that's not an uncommon view, this sort of helpless, you know, it's just the way it is. What can I do about it? And one of the things we begin to notice when we have more present moment awareness is whatever the present moment is, and it's a mystery in some ways, but we see that the mind, the heart, is actively participating in the construction of it. It doesn't mean that there aren't external aspects of what makes the moment what it is. But what it does mean is that how the mind is relating or how the mind is showing up, I actually like the word relating a lot in terms of like how we're, how the mind is actively participating in the construction the fabrication is another way that people talk about this, how the mind is fabricating, constructing, fabricating the present moment. Because it really evokes a sense of responsibility. How can I participate in a skillful way? How can I cease participating in an unskillful way? And this really brings us to the heart of what we're going to be studying these next uh, three weeks. And we get the pointing out already. Now you, you know, it's, it's up for us to each determine, like, are these pointing out instructions useful? But, you know, we've all heard it many times, those of you who've been around. So the three unwholesome roots are the tendency to be relating, to be kind of constructing or fabricating the present moment with the coloring of greed or the coloring of aversion, which remember includes fear, and the coloring of delusion. Sometimes the three of them working together, some of them, sometimes one of them quite strong, the other not so much in um, participating in the fabrication and the construction of the present moment. And of course, the opposite, the absence of greed in the mind or the absence of aversion, the absence of delusion. And don't think of these, I mean, 
it's nice that the Buddha uses non-greed. That's actually how it's translated, non-aversion, non-delusion. But we know that that's a beautiful or a positive thing, right? The absence of greed, right, means the mind is naturally generous, naturally content, naturally not dependent on the moment being better than it is. Right? That's what non that's the experience when non greed is coloring the mind. Non aversion is kindness and compassion. Non delusion is that absence of confusion, the absence of doubt, the absence of denial and distraction. One uh, sutta that really speaks to this, you know, the wholesome and unwholesome roots. There's a, a pretty famous passage. Partly it's famous because it's one of the few times where the star was a layperson and not a nun or a monk in the time of the Buddha. So there was this wise layperson, um, and he would, after the nuns and monks got their meal, which normally they'd get up pretty early, the rule was if you can see the lines in your palm, then it's the sun is up high enough that you can walk to the village with your bowl and receive a meal from the lay people because the monks and nuns can't store food overnight. And there was, I mean, this is sort of an aside, but it really created this symbiotic relationship between the monastic communities and the lay people. They, the monastics weren't independent. The Buddha created the community on purpose that they'd be dependent on the lay people every day or they're going to fast, right? They have to walk in. And so the lay people get to interact and they feed and they get this beautiful example of what, like, of studying the mind and really not chasing, not sort of being chased by and chasing greed, anger, and delusion, the unwholesome roots, right? Because they have this sort of example. In any case, so the nuns and monks would get their food relatively early in the day to clean up. And then they'd often, because they mostly spent the midday all the way through the evening till they went to bed in seclusion. They'd be sort of in the general vicinity, but each person's camp or hut or you know, camp spot would be maybe 100 meters away from somebody else's. So they felt relatively secluded, but if a tiger came or if they got bit by a snake, they could yell, and then one of their buddies, monastic buddies, would come running, right, to help them out. So there is this sort of rich time after the meal where they would talk about their minds, about practice, about the teachings. And Chitta, this layperson, would show up at that time and just listen to the conversations. And so one time he was around a couple monks and they were talking about their practice and they were having kind of a Dharma discussion, even maybe argument. And they were talking about like, you know, the aspect of of contact with experience. So there's the sensitivity of the eyes and and then there's the object that the eyes see and the sensitivity of the ears and the sounds that ears hear, and the sensitivity of the skin and the touches that skin feels. Right? So there are there's six sensitivities, the five physical senses, and then the mind is sensitive to thoughts. Right? And it's through these are the six ways there's contact. And contact is this coming together of sensitivity, like a sensitive eye, and an object that the eye sees, and the consciousness that illuminates the coming together. So this is just a little bit of Buddhist psychology. You've got consciousness, you have an object, like a visual object or an auditory object, and you have some sensitivity. And when all those three things are there, only then do you have contact, you know, an experience being known, right? And so they were talking about contact and they were talking about suffering. And like, how is it that in moments, at least, 
in a lot of moments, and the more we pay attention, almost all the time, contact is difficult. I mean, even when we're having a pleasant experience, it's, it can be quite difficult because we want it to last or we want it to be more intensely pleasure, pleasurable, right? So even pleasant experience, the heart's not completely at ease. So they were really looking at it and they were wondering, well, is the problem that we human beings are sensitive? We have sensitive eyes and sensitive ears and sensitive touch, sensitive noses and tongues and a sensitive mind, a mind that's sensitive to mental activity. So is the problem the sensitivity or is the problem that there's objects, you know, that there are sounds and there are sights, right? Because it really helps you figure out like what the resolution, because if the problem is sensitivity, then I'm going to remove my eye. Or if the problem is the visual objects, then I'm going to go someplace where there are no visual objects and no sounds, and no touches, right? So these weren't very wise monks. You're probably getting that sense. And luckily, Chitta was listening in, and they had the wherewithal, which is a little unusual, to say, well, what do you think You know about this debate that we're having? And so Chitta weighs in. He gives him the simile of two oxen, you know, the big beasts that would pull carts, and let's say one's a dark color and one's a a light color, just to distinguish the two of them. And they, you know how they would tie the two oxen together to pull the cart, either with a rope or with a wooden yoke, right, to kind of, so they stay in sync with each other. And so Chitta asked the monk, so would it be right to say that the dark colored oxen is a fetter, a burden to the light colored one, or that the light-colored one is a burden to the dark-colored oxen. And they were wise enough to go, no, it's the, the problem is the yoke. It isn't that one is a burden to the other, but that they're tied together. That's, that's sort of what, you know, that's their oppression. That's what imprisons them in their life, that they're yoked together. And so Chittis, because he's using the simile, he says, well, just so. You know, the reason I use a simile, it's not the sensitivity of the eye that's the problem, the dark-colored oxen, and it's not the visual object that's being seen that's the problem. The problem is this other thing that yokes the sensitivity with the object. And this helps us get a sense of the wholesome and the unwholesome roots. It's that thing that arises that in a sense conditions contact. Remember, contact just means experience. But it's kind of a nice word, contact. You know, like in a way, everything is a touch, visual. I mean, we even have that in terms of Western science about photons touching the retina, you know, and the waves of sound touching the inner ear and the, I don't know, what is smell, you know, but little molecules, I guess, that are, there's some sensitive receptor too, and same with the taste. Touch is obvious, but even, you know, mental activity touches some sensitive part of the mind that recognizes thought, right? It's a kind of contact. And why is some contact, why is a lot of contact stressful? And we just want to disappear, you know. It's like see no evil, hear no evil. You know, we just want to. What I I said this recently I, in some talk I forget where it was, but I, I kind of made this like uh, challenge to the group. What is the most regular, dependable, pleasant feeling that you have almost every day? where the mind, the heart, gets a little taste of being completely unburdened. Any thoughts? Deep sleep, right? Because dreaming is kind of like daily life. (laughs) Right? I mean, sometimes 
it's a nightmare and sometimes it's you know relatively interesting or pleasant but it's not really that different dream life but and the funny thing is we're not conscious in deep sleep i'm not at least and uh but coming out of deep sleep it was like whatever that was that was good <laughs> you know which is like not being there because a lot of the time when we are conscious and there's sensitivity and there's objects of experience that the mind is sensitive to and that's illuminated by what we call consciousness it's being known right consciousness is that part of the mind we say knows that's what consci- that's the particular job of consciousness it just knows right and what does it know it knows the coming together of sensitivity and some object that sensitivity is sensitive to depending on what organ of sensitivity we're talking about and we don't know the world except in these six ways we know it through the sensitivity of smell and taste and touch and sight and sound and the sensitivity to mental activity and that's it and when there is contact that's illuminated by consciousness there's always or almost always some baggage right the yoke of greediness the yoke of fear and aversion the yoke of absence of clarity like delusion like uh, one of the common expressions of delusion is thinking i know this experience so we're, we're sort of a perception like i look at andre for example at the back of the room and my perception which is that mental recognition like naming oh yeah that's andre that's a thought that's not the visual experience right that's something else but it can totally dominate the mind in a way so we get interested in the yoke that arises that conditions contact is greed conditioning contact right now is aversion or fear conditioning contact is delusion like a fixed idea, fixed perception, fixed opinion or denial or distraction or superficiality, these are different aspects of delusion, right? Is it conditioning the contact right now? Or the absence of greed conditioning contact or the absence of any fear or, or aversion or the absence of any delusion? I mean that doesn't that sort of make the mind interested like well what is contact when it's not being conditioned by greed anger and delusion it's like asking what is the mind of a buddha like right what is the mind of an enlightened being like a wise deeply wise and kind person like cuz that that mind is having contact just like we are they could have a messy life raising kids or in a war zone or you know whatever difficult or beautiful situation so they're having contact like any other human being but contact doesn't have the yoke of greed anger and delusion so what is seeing hearing smelling tasting touching and thinking when it isn't being conditioned or colored by greed anger and delusion Now the interesting thing is we have like in in one day let alone one 30 minute sit I mean think about how many mind moments we have how many moments of contact there are incalculable even in a 30 minute sit because you know a moment of contact happens many 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 times in a second we're not consciously aware of all those moments but there are many many moments of contact even in a second we don't have to catch them all so don't worry about that piece but we can get really start getting interested in these moments of contact and the difference like I try to suggest in the guided meditation between like wh- well what is the coloring what is this contact being colored by and it just the general tone of contraction 
versus an open. Because I can have pain, and if it's really the experience of feeling painful sensations in my knee, if it's being conditioned by a lot of delusion, like I don't really want to know it. That would be delusion, right? Or some fixed idea that, oh, it's no problem. So that would be a deluded, or maybe it's being conditioned by aversion. Like, why me? You know, this isn't fair. But we can just see that, oh yeah, when the pain is conditioned by one of the unwholesome roots, there's this sort of vortex where things get oppressive. It's hard to be me. It's hard to have me meaning contact, right? Because of the yoke. It's not actually the pain, and it's not actually the fact that I'm awake and sensitive to sensation. The problem is this fabrication. What does the mind do with the contact? The sensitivity of touch being sensitive to the particular sensation of that knee pain. What does the mind do? It constructs a scent with aversion as a sort of clay, <laughs> you know, the sort of material that the mind uses. It shapes the sense of a me who hates the pain in the knee. And that constructed sense of a me who feels oppressed by the pain in the knee, that's really unworkable. It's hard to bear. So then I become quite dependent on something pleasant. Yeah, my knee may hurt, but pretty soon the sit will be over and I'm going to get the heck out of here. and I'm going to go to the Seward Co-op and get one of those... What's the smoothie I like? It's got a clever name. It has whey in it. Uh, anybody remember? Anyway, show me the way. <laughs> Avocado, banana, whey, and a few other things that makes it very delicious and smooth. <laughs> so then, then the mind, you see, it goes right from contact yoked by aversion to contact yoked by greed because it doesn't know what else to do with the oppressiveness of the aversion that's a contracted state so it gets contracted with greed it's still painful but it's a little bit it's sort of like on the very thin surface it looks juicy like yeah i'm going to go to the sewer co-op and get this thing but underneath just underneath the thin surface is the tightness of the greed. And that wears the thin veneer of like how exciting that will be, veers off. So then I think, well, maybe I'll get a chocolate brownie too. <laughs> you know? And then probably something salty would be nice. Right? And then I should probably get something healthy. <laughs> you know? So I'll get some green tea because that has caffeine in it. And, and then all of a sudden, the mind recognizes how trapped I am in the greed, and then I bring in self-hatred, right? So then more aversion. And then we're in this, and then it's just like, oh, I can't handle this. I need to check out. And then we bring in delusion, right? We go look at the news, for example. Like, I can't handle how oppressive it is to be me, so I'm going to notice how bad the world is, you know, or watch a video or, you know, cat video or something. And, but now, because we've got this frame, we can really be noticing the yoke all day long. What's the yoke here? Of course, because I'm a, a living human being, there's contact. There's always contact, right? There's sensitivity, being sensitive, sensitive to something. What's the yoke here? And this is so Buddhist, right? Because non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion, which is freedom which is love, which is generosity, which is contentment, which is ease. It's more about what's not there than what's there. Right? So it's like sometimes you'll notice like maybe, you know, with the sunshine in the next few days, I know 
Monday, or Wednesday, I think it's going to be maybe in the 60s, you know, and so you might be out and feeling the warmth and feeling the sun on the skin. And maybe even, it might be a little soon, but maybe even some of the smells that we're used to in the spring, right? But you'll look because of the course that we're taking together. What's the yoke here? And maybe you won't see any greed there. It will be just the pleasantness of spring, right? It will be just the contact, the nose and the smell and the seeing and the sights and the touch, the sensitivity of the skin and the touch, maybe the sounds, maybe the thoughts about spring. But the mind won't be coloring it with greed. And so the flavor of that experience will be the freedom, right? the absence of the heart being burdened by greed. That's what we call contentment. It's really the absence of that contraction. That's what we call generosity, you know, that upwelling, that expansive quality is the absence of the oppressiveness of greed. And then just a normal moment like that will... You know, and then you'll hear the report about a winter storm coming in in early April <laughs> or something like that. You know, and then it will be a different experience and you'll see. And again, it's not so much about controlling what wholesome or unwholesome root is coloring the contact or conditioning the contact. It's just learning to read it. And that's really radical that we don't have to get in there and fix it or control it. Okay, never again am I going to color experience with greed or with aversion or with delusion. It's more like just doing the correlation. When the moment is being colored by greed, things are tight. When there's an absence of greed, things are open. That's enough. When the moment's colored by aversion, things are tight. When it's colored by non-aversion, love, things are expansive. When the moment is colored by superficiality or a fixed view or any of the expressions of delusion, things are tight. And when there's an absence, there's that space, that freedom, the absence of delusion. And we really get that correlation. And then the other thing with homework is, like I said at the end of the guided meditation, really get interested. You can do this right at the beginning of a set and then I'd recommend you do it at the end. And this, as you know, because we're all people who've been meditating at least a little while, right? So we we need, it isn't just about using a meditation object and calming the mind. It's There's really an important place of contemplation. Like we're contemplating what the heck does it mean to be mindful? And so we might use a few thoughts, like bring some instruction to mind, and then we immediately check it out in real time, in the present moment. So we're not endlessly thinking, proliferating around thought about mindfulness, but it's like, okay, mindfulness means to remember the present moment. Now that's thinking, right? But then that thought, okay, remember the present moment. Then you do it. Then you don't need that thought. Right? The thought brings you sort of to the edge Right, where we're no longer the mind is no longer caught in the conceptual space, cognitive space, and now it's actually remembering, oh yeah, this is being known. But without the words, this is being known. And then we forget, what is it again? <laughs> what am I doing? Right? And then and then as you get a better sense of what it won't be a perfect sense, but you're getting a sense of like actually being aware of what mindfulness is, then ask yourself like are the unwholesome roots there when the mind is relatively mindful? Because what we want to do is start to see how one of the easiest, ultimately, I mean, it's not easy, but relatively easy ways to purify the mind of the unwholesome roots is to be mindful. So you could be all worked up, full of rage, full of delusion, And then you notice that you're full of rage and delusion. And there's that wholesome intention just to be aware, 
just to be mindfully aware of how worked up, how reactive, how entangled the mind is. So then we're aware. And so immediately, right, if the mind really understands what mindfulness is, immediately the mind isn't being governed by the unwholesome roots. Even though the the anger and the delusion may still be reverberating, but now the mind is the one that is aware, mindfully aware of the reverberations that might continue of anger and delusion. It's not the anger. It's not the delusion. It's knowing. It's the knowing. Right? That's what's happening. Because that's what mindfulness is. It's the non-greedy, non-controlling, non-averse, and non-deluded recognition that it's like this now. This is what's happening in the mind and body. It's just this experience. So it, by vi- the very definition of mindfulness, it's free of greed, anger, and delusion when it's got some momentum. Now, we'll, what we'll start to catch is like, oh, this mindfulness has some greed. It's trying to get somewhere. Or this mindfulness has some aversion. I'm using it to suppress something. I'm being mindful to try to make something go away. Or this mindfulness isn't really interested. It's just doing it superficially. It's not really sincere. It doesn't really want to connect with things as they are. It just is doing it on autopilot. That's delusion. right? That's mindfulness being fabricated with delusion. And so that's how we'll purify the mindfulness. Because you need a really purified mindfulness to see the more subtle unwholesome and wholesome roots. Right? That's because it's I mean, sure, if we're totally rageful, we're gonna catch the unwholesome root of aversion. But you know, we're mostly not people running around throwing things and screaming, maybe in some moments. But generally, you know, but that doesn't mean there isn't aversion coloring the moment or greed coloring the moments of our lives. Of course, it's there almost all the time. And it's not enough to ask, like, is there greed in the mind or is there aversion in the mind? We need a sensitive instrument. We need mindfulness. That's like the best way to see aversion is with a mind state that doesn't have aversion. That's the mindfulness. Right, the quality of a of mindfulness, really, the contrast makes it easy to see the unwholesome roots. I know it seems a little contradictory. So, um, part of this exploration, especially this first week, let's get really interested when you get some sort of momentum with your awareness, your mindful awareness, to ask be interested if there's any greed supporting or affecting the mindfulness, any aversion, any superficiality or delusion. And then just see it. Just be aware of it. Because that's how things change. Just acknowledging the unwholesome roots and just acknowledging the wholesome roots. And then the last thing I'll mention, so this first uh, this first small group sharing we'll have next week will emphasize um, looking at the unwholesome root of greed and the wholesome root of non-greed. And I'll send some more readings out. And some of you might have an article or a talk around greed or generosity and contentment, letting go, renunciation, the different flavors of non-greed, send them my way and I'll post it up for others to read too. So if you've come across some good articles or uh, Dharma talks on these subjects as we go along, always let me know. And Kevin and I will make sure it gets up on on our webpage. So maybe before I say more, I'll just see if there are some questions about what I've said thus far and in general about this topic, this Dharma topic of looking at the Buddhist teachings on wholesome and unwholesome roots, a kusala, kusala. This is, these are the words for wholesome and unwholesome. Any questions in the group?
even comments from your own experience of seeing some of these roots, the yoke conditioning a moment of experience, a moment of contact. Yeah, Andre. Yes, thank you. And, uh, you know, today I was kind of touching uh, in the beginning of my sit some ease, some ease in practice. And it was really interesting because, um, you know, often, sometimes it can be confusing, like what is non-greed with these pleasant states? And what felt really appropriate today was just how you kind of mentioned the opposites of maybe gratitude as an expression. And it felt just really appropriate. Almost, I know it's, maybe it's not, it's like taking on a frame kind of like it as a visitor, you know, coming there and visiting in my practice and this real sense of gratitude because there's, there's also this understanding how ephemeral it can be like how any sense of trying to hold on to it can make it go away. And then it kind of ebbed and flowed a little bit for the next 30 minutes. But I was able to keep on touching. It's like, well, the mind is not in a state of hell. And so on that spectrum somewhere, I could touch on the gratitude for whatever contentedness was there. Yeah. And that just really seemed to kind of stabilize it in a way. And it's kind of became the theme of, well, what is that non-greed and that gratitude? And it was almost like the whole sense of the body, like bowing to the practice in a way. And what do you say is so important, Andre, and uh, I wanted to kind of cover it, and we'll talk more about it next week, but because, you know, when we talk about the wholesome roots in the negative as non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion, it can make it seem like our whole path that the Buddha points out is this sort of dismal thing like, you know, life is rough, so don't make it rougher by getting involved in greed, anger, and delusion. You know, abandon it. It's not, it's not much, but at least you're not going to be tied up with greed, anger, and delusion. But non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion is described in the tr- tradition as very beautiful very expansive, very free states. And it's really important to understand that the whole path is really predicated on a deepening, it's like following this thread of a deepening, more refined inner pleasure, right? It's something beautiful is opening up. Now it will trigger greed, right? The ego will want to hold on to it. But that's okay, because we'll lose it, like you were saying, Andre, and, and we'll learn something about that. Like how to let something beautiful blossom. And the worst thing we can do is sort of try to control it or own it. right? Because it's really about letting go. This All this inner bliss, contentment, more refined states of ease and release, even more refined states of quiet and peace and stillness, and even more beautiful and resonant states of putting everything down, you know, like the insight of awakening. That whole movement is more and more about what the heart lets go of. And that's why, you know, I mentioned earlier about using the negative non-greed, non-hate, or non-aversion, and non-delusion. And and it's always tricky because so much of the conditioning of the mind is about picking stuff up and doing something. And when we do that, we almost always do it with greed, anger, and delusion. So a lot of what we're learning in the more meditative half of our practice, because there's the more active practice of being out in the world, right? So I'll talk about that in a minute. But like in the meditative part, we're really learning to put things down, learning to let go, and really seeing that as a movement toward the release, the opening, the freeing up, 
of the mind, the heart. And then out in the world, you know, where we have duties and responsibilities, we're in relationship. The thing is, it's still empty of greed, anger, and delusion, but now we need to be animated, right? We have to make choices and do things and not do things. But that's really, it's also empty, which means it's just the activity of nature. And I think you could say it's the activity of love, right? It's the, it's the animating force of nature slash love when it isn't being governed or motivated by greed, anger, and delusion. We, all, we just assume wrongly that without greed, anger, and delusion, nothing would get done. But it's just not the case. We actually have to explore that. And we'll, one of the things we'll see, you'll see this week, hopefully, you'll catch moments. I mean, it won't be 100% pure, but you'll catch moments where you were alive and responsive and engaged and the mind, the contact, the experiences that were arising for you weren't being conditioned by greed, anger, delusion very much. And the aftertaste of those moments, those seconds, is like no trace, like there was nothing left over. So there's a real light, beautiful quality. You know, we have, in just kind of conventional language, we have words like, I was, I was in the groove or, you know, in the flow of experience. Because this is not an uncommon experience. What's less common is to notice it clearly, to understand it deeply when it happens. Because we often will misinterpret like, oh, it's because I really love playing one-on-one basketball. So we associate the freedom with that particular activity. I really, you know, I'm into knitting. So when I knit, I get in this zone, in this flow. But it isn't the knitting. It's the absence, the, the experience isn't being conditioned by greed, anger, and delusion. When we have that liberating or free experience. Yeah, thanks, Andre. Any other comments or thoughts? Yeah, John, and then over here. Uh, so it, I think something's beginning to come clear to me. Uh, I'd like your comment on it. Um, it, it just occurred to me that that lead a lot, lost a lot. A lot of Western culture sees the foundation of human nature as greedy, as greed. Yeah, and so we need ethics and rules and laws and morality to keep it in check. But on this idea, on the Buddhist idea, is that it's greed, anger, and delusion that distorts the fundamental heart, which is loving kindness and compassion and 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 joy, appreciative joy and uh, equanimity. And so when we, I think that was one of the resistance I had, is like, well, if you strip all this away, then what are people going to do? <laughs> but <laughs> if people aren't basically greedy and, and nasty, then that gets stripped away and then the heart is able to express itself. Right. And and one, you ha- we want to be a little bit, bit careful with language because we can, like in later schools of Buddhism, they really rarefied that idea of that underlying nature and they called it Buddha nature and they made it a kind of a positive thing. And what I said earlier on in the talk about not following but training the mind. So it might be better to think of nature, this is sort of the teaching on dependent origination, right? You remember the wheel of life, those of you who took the winter course? And and do you remember the depiction in the center of the wheel of life? There is the rooster, the snake, and the pig, and they were sort of chasing each other. And that was at the very hub of the wheel, the center of the wheel, Right? That's greed, anger, and delusion, keeping everything in motion. And so in a way, it is, it's really at the heart, greed, anger, and delusion of samsara. And you can call life, the world, nature, the nature to want to survive, you know, which is sort of 
at the heart of what we normally call nature. Yeah, I think it is appropriate to characterize it. But also what is here in this nature, in this samsara, in this pig chasing the snake, chasing the rooster, you know, greed, anger, and delusion, which is the existential uneasiness, there's also something here, which is this capacity to be aware, to see things clearly, and to see that continuing to invest in this doesn't deliver anything but continued stress. There's no resolution. There's nowhere in the samsara, in the uh, beast trying to survive, the beast never gets to a resting place. Have you ever seen a beast in a permanent resting place? Human beast, cat beast, some cats maybe, but (laughs) most beasts (laughs) never get to a perfect resting place where everything is forever okay. So that's what awareness, wisdom awareness can reveal. So then wisdom awareness goes, so what is the refuge then? If survival and a nice house in the suburbs and you know whatever perfection, utopia might appear, if that's not really ultimately any kind of end, where where's the refuge? And this is what the Buddha and others have discovered. There is, there's actually a refuge. And the refuge is around that yoke. It's not about complaining about the fact that there's experience or that I'm sensitive to experience. We give up on that. And really, it's all about how the mind, the heart is relating to experience. That's the emphasis, is purifying that relationship. So what is this activity of nature? Beasts seeking food, seeking to reproduce, seeking to whatever, have safety. That's what beasts do, right? All of us, we're all beasts, trying to be safe, trying to keep ourselves fed and warm, have a little bit of affection, not too much. You know, that dynamic is, that's a restless realm. This this human realm, it's a restless realm. It can never not be a restless realm, right? But we can relate to the restlessness of the human realm in a way that is free of greed, anger, and delusion. And then who is it a problem for? The restlessness, birth and death, aging, sickness, power, plays, success and failure. It's only a problem for a mind that is caught up in using greed, anger, and delusion to relate. But a mind that has trained itself to not relate with greed, anger, and delusion, it doesn't have a problem with being a beast. And just like each of us, we've had moments, maybe not perfect moments, where we are a beast, we're conditioned by sexuality, we're conditioned by hunger, conditioned by needing warmth and safety and affection and all social needs that we all have, just genetically and culturally, right? But haven't there been moments where we've experienced relative freedom just like we've had moments of being very oppressed by the condition of being a human being. Anybody not have moments really weighed down or oppressed by it? But we've also had moments of real freedom. And that's kind of interesting, right? It sort of begs the question like, so maybe what made that moment so free? Was it that? Was it about the particular object that was being I was sensitive to? Or was it the way the mind was relating to that experience? And that's kind of what we're teasing apart in these next few weeks. So I need to end here. It's almost 9 o'clock. Sorry, maybe you can bring it to the small groups next week if your sharing is relevant. And I think because it's almost 9 o'clock, we won't do the chant. But for those of you who haven't done the three refuges, you might want to keep the sheet Um, If you don't need it, you can just leave it up here and we'll use it for future courses. And we'll begin next week with that chant.
But let's just take a few seconds to let go of the words, just a minute or even less than a minute. Noticing the presence of the unwholesome or wholesome roots, whatever it might be now. Thanks for coming, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org dot org slash donate.